0: Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires. Land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values. Courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. Well, good morning, Lewis. How are you doing? Good morning, Sandy.
1: I'm doing fine, thank you.
0: I wanted to introduce Lewis to to my listeners that he happens to be a cousin of mine his we both have the same great grandfather Eli Swallow his mother was a swallow Lewis uh I know you've had many experiences I I kind of see from your biography and one of the important things that I think is You've pretty much lived on the reservation, Pine Ridge Reservation, all your life, haven't you?
1: Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences and maybe how how come you went off the reservation, you was in the service? What years was that? Uh, 1959, 60, 61. Oh, okay. What What Part of the service was you in.
1: Uh, I was I was in the army. I was a military ba- at a missile base.
0: Oh, really? Where about?
1: Well, I started out in Colorado Springs, and but I spent most of my time in Rapid City.
0: Oh well, that was fortunate, huh?
1: And then uh, in Can then I went to Kansas.
0: What? But what They had you- the
1: the uh, they used to have. Uh, uh, four missile sites around, and they were for the protection of Ellsworth, and four sites there.
0: Oh, okay. What was your job then?
1: I was a computer operator.
0: Oh, no kidding. Way back then, yeah.
1: huh? Yeah, back then, yes. And it's kind of amazing. Our computers covered a wall probably 20 feet long and 8 feet high. That was all of our, our whole computer.
0: Oh, I know. I know I know when Wayne was looking for a job and we were uh, losing the farm he went to school in Chadron but that was in the you know mid 80s he took computer classes and back then that was one reason he got hired farm service agency was because he knew computers so that oh, yes. was that was something really unique and different back then that people don't even think about right now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, then you came, uh, eventually you came back to to Pine Ridge. Can you tell me a, a little bit about what uh, the work you did there and what, what all has gone on in your life with that?
1: Well, uh, after I got out of the Army, well, uh, my dad had a heart attack, so I came back to the ranch here where we... Had lived uh, in 19 prior to 1942, and then we had to leave because of the bombing range. And then I came back when he got sick, and so I was here about 10 years. Uh, I did several different things while being on a ranch, and I bought some cattle and had some horses, and I helped him too. Um. One of the things uh, during this time I, I got involved in. What was going on in agriculture, and we started organization, livestock and cattlemen's association on a reservation, and we became very involved with the federal government, and the BIA, and the tribe, and and we were very active, and we really got involved in a lot of different things, and we were fairly successful about getting some things done, but as a group, well, we was able to do this,
0: united together, huh?
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah. What
0: was the name of the organization?
1: The Oglala Sioux Land and Cattle Association.
0: Oh, okay. And how long did that go?
1: Well, uh, I was involved in about 10, 12 years. And then seems like after I left, it just kept getting down, down. They still have it, but they they just don't do anything at all.
0: Okay. At the time but, you you was involved in it, what what was your vision in it, and what do you feel like was accomplished?
1: We were able to work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and get a few things changed, like uh, the uh, at one time the allotment for uh, what you could get for allocation was like a hundred head. and We got that up to two hundred and fifty head, and then. Um, During that time, it was a drought for two, three years and nobody had any grass. So we were able to get some funds and help the association, helped individuals pay their leases because a lot of them had to sell down or lease other land or something. And then another big thing right after that was the prairie dogs? They just took over the reservation oh, and destroyed I remem- the grass.
0: I remember that. That was that was devastating.
1: You're right, it really was bad, and a lot of people don't remember that. That was so devastating, you know. Mm-hmm. But so one of the things we did, we we filed a lawsuit against the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and we won a court case, and they they put four million dollars into controlling prairie dogs. So that was a big thing.
0: Yes. I, I see in 1970 you became involved in a national org- organization in agriculture and was the secretary of the National Indian Cattlemen's Association. Yes, uh, right. And basically that must have been nationwide, huh?
1: Yes, it was, right. Uh,
0: do, you know, uh, do you know about how many people were in that organization?
1: Well, there were t- 10 board of directors and they were from all over the United States. It was somebody from, uh, uh, John Fredericks from North Dakota was president and he was very active and very good and And we had uh, Dwayne Claymore from Standing Rock and myself, we were the ones that pretty much st- started it and pushed it, the three of us. And one of our goals was to start a co-op of Indian farmers and ranchers, purchase a feedlot, purchase a slaughterhouse, and buy cattle from the local Indians and put them in feedlot and put them in slaughterhouse and furnish meat for the BIA, their schools, their commodity programs. So we spent a lot of time trying to get that done, but we never was able to get the funding to do that. But now you take a look at it and the many, many ranchers really would like to do this because the uh, ranchers don't make much money. The feedlots don't make much money. But the, the packers, the ones that have slaughterhouses and package it and sell it, they buy the cattle for around, right now, like a steer for 1400 $1,500. And they get about 800 pounds off in it. And they sell it for about $10 a pound. So that's eight thousand dollars they get in return. Yes. So you know there's a big gap there.
0: And not only that, but right now with with the COVID virus, it has impacted those packers so much, and we're seeing a trickle down effect. And that's right. Yes. It would be so much better to to have something like what you was your vision was for. And I know I talked to my cousin down on the south. Uh, west part of the reservation, and she said that they can't even get in a steer or anything to be butchered at the local butcher uh, right. until until April two thousand twenty
1: one. Oh. oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> last I heard, it was six months. <laughs>
0: yeah, mm-hmm. no, no. So wow. you know this this is gonna create a hardship on everybody. The more, the longer right. things go. You know, I want my listeners to know that Lewis is a Lakota elder. He was born in 1936, so he has some um, information that simply might be lost if we don't kind of get it from him. And I'm, I'm just going to go on the assumption about not knowing anything about Badlands bombing range and not knowing because I've been I've heard of the bombing range all my life and but I never really quite understood it and didn't certainly didn't understand the impact. So Lewis, can you give us some background as to why the bombing range was uh, needed and and then just kind of tell your personal story about what happened. So why did they do the bombing range? Well, in
1: 1942, when the, the war was on, they said they needed an area to practice bombing, and they chose this area right here.
0: Which, which, was, is, which is where?
1: Which is the north end of the reservation, and uh, it's 376,000 acres and it was mostly owned by the tribe and individual Indians, probably about 20% by non-Indians. But they came one day and told us, they're taking us here using their public domain, and we needed to be gone in 10 days.
0: 10 days?
1: Right. And, uh And
0: how many was in your family?
1: There was six of us. And uh, there was about a total of 125 families involved. And so I was uh, six years old then, but uh, I didn't really remember that. But I remember dad and mom telling me that. And, you know, we, we all, as we kids, all felt really bad because we just had to up and leave. But they did give us a few more days, but they gave us a total of 30 days. But that uh, was in August, and uh, we had to be out of here. And I remember we. When we moved, well, uh, we had a car and packed all the kids and clothes in the car, and and we had a wagon and we put the had the food in there, and then a hay rack, and we put the furniture there. And we couldn't take all the equipment. We couldn't take the hay. Couldn't take our our uh, like unharvested corn and grain. We just had to leave all that and leave all the equipment here. Leave our quills and barns, house and everything.
0: Do you, Do you have any idea how long your folks had been on on the property and and had they homesteaded it or?
1: That was where my grandfather lived, and then my folk, my dad lived there all his life. Oh, he, so he that, that was the, he was born in in 1908 so they lived there before that
0: mm-hmm. wow that had to have been very hard for for them and and i imagine you guys probably had horses and stuff what what did All you right. do with the livestock
1: well uh we we moved out and then my dad and one of my uncles rode back here well we moved about 25 miles from here and They came and got the horses, and we didn't have very many cows at that time, probably 30, 40, Mm -hmm. but they moved them out, and other dad had quite a few horses, and just his main horses, the ones he used all the time, he took them, but then he left the the rest of the horses here, but he didn't move the cattle, but we was fortunate enough that we moved to my mother's folks' place, and... They had a log building there that was didn't have no flooring in it. it was a shop, so we remodeled that, put a floor in it had a dirt roof. And that's what we lived in.
0: Do you have any idea how long you lived there?
1: Well, we lived there probably. Well, one of the things good happened was that my uh, grandmother swallow my mother's mother, uh, was uh, daughter of Bat Puyer. Probably heard of Bad Puyer.
0: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And anyway, that was his place. And they had a big, big house there, two story frame, big, real big house, and a big barn. And my grandmother was uh, working at Manderson at the day school there. So after we lived in a log house for about a year, well, she said, Well, why don't you move in this big house? Because We could just live in Manderson," she said. So we did move in there, and so I think we left there in '47. They said you could move back where you originally was, and so we moved back here '47. About a year and a half later, they kicked us out again.
0: Oh, no kidding! um, Well, tell me how many people, how many families were affected by that, and how did they Uh, compensate? you when they said you had to leave?
1: There was about 125 families all together, and the only thing they did for the Indians, they paid you a dollar per acre for what you owned. And like my dad owned about a quarter, so he got $160. They didn't give you anything else for anything else. They didn't pay you for anything. So that's all he got was $160, and he had to leave.
0: So was that the same for the white...
1: For, uh, well, well, the whites, they got appraisal price, so I don't remember. They, they were paid more money for their land, though, they 7 $8 an acre.
0: Oh, wow. But wow. That's
1: quite a bit more than the Indians got, though.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But uh, then uh, later on, well, we had to move off for like two years, and we moved back on. And at that time, well, you could uh, repurchase your land for what they gave you. Plus interest, but they charged the interest for all those years. Oh. and when when we moved back, the the house was gone, everything, barn was gone. We even had apple trees, and some of them were chopped down.
0: What was it gone gone because of the bombing? No, no. What? How come it well, was gone?
1: Well, well uh, nobody was around here, so people just came and took it.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, and the house is gone, and uh. Greenery and the crawls.
0: Did your dad have much equipment?
1: Yeah, he had quite a bit of equipment. The line for the bombing range was about three-quarters of a mile from here, so he moved his equipment off the bombing range. But then in bombing, they set fire to that area and it burned everything up. But he had a lot of equipment, you know, like horse trailers and plows and disc and, and all that stuff. And, so.
0: He, he lost just lost
1: everything. Lost everything. Wow. But you know, if you're moving like that back then, how do you move all that stuff?
0: That's right. You know, people yeah. um, don't realize how different it was back then. Yeah, it, right. It uh-huh. was it was a big deal to go to Rapid City.
1: Or, yeah, right. You know,
0: mm-hmm. you it, you <laughs> you just didn't travel like we do nowadays.
1: Right. <laughs> and like when we moved, I remember we had to afford the go across White River, and there was no bridge. And my mom was driving a car, and she was afraid to cross the river, so my dad had to drive the car across the river. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't blame her. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, then they, then the Air Force, a lot of the stuff that was left here, like the equipment, anything metal,
0: uh-huh.
1: they, they moved it and they made a radar target. They had a big circle and a cross in the middle. So they just picked up everybody's equipment that was left there and used that as a target. So anything that wasn't destroyed by burning or something, they they took and bombed it.
0: Oh, wow. Well, I know, and I'm trying to remember, didn't they um, hire a group to come in and try to clear those old bombs out of there? Do you remember when that was? Uh Uh-huh.
1: Oh, probably about 1980. The first time they came one time. Well, first time they just came and took before '80, they took some of the stuff, the obvious stuff. And about 1980, they came back and and uh, took some more. Then a little later, they came back and they had some kind of metal detector, and they that they pulled along and they dug up a lot of the bombs.
0: Oh, okay. So you feel it's pretty safe out there now? Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> right. So are you uh do you have cattle now?
1: I ha- I just have a few cattle and a few horses. Oh, okay. When I first moved back here, well, I always had cattle and horses.
0: So, Lewis, you have been on that land for generations. How many generations has that been?
1: Well, my grandfather was the one first settled here, then my father, then myself. Now, and live now, at the same place. They all lived.
0: Oh, okay. And then your uh, your son, Dustin, is there with you, isn't he?
1: Yes, right. He lives there. Yes. just a little ways from me. Yes, uh huh. And right, that's uh-huh.
0: that's so fortunate that you have your grandkids there and
1: stuff. Oh, it's really uh, yeah. He is. that's great. Uh,
0: <laughs> and Dustin, for. Uh, for my listeners benefit that he he's an artist and he's just up and coming and just doing really well in his career. Uh, His business is twist gallery. And so I have to get that in for him because I think he's pretty special. Um, So tell me a little bit about how your great uh, was your great grandfather, how he ended up there. Do you know?
1: Uh my great-grandfather was Thomas Twiss, and he was from uh, Troy, New York, and he went to West Point in 1826, and he graduated second in his class, and for a couple of years, he stayed there and taught. So you know, many of the military people, in the following years, he either went to school with them or taught them, so he was very well acquainted with many of the officers and generals.
0: And, and he was not Native American, right?
1: No, he, he was non-Indian, right. Uh-huh.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know, was he German or what kind of name is Twiss?
1: Uh, well, he came from England.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Mm-hmm. But then he, from uh, there, after he left there, well, he was uh, a professor at... Uh, University of South Carolina, and also uh, he was an uh, engineer, and he he designed and he was the engineer for a lot of the buildings, and I've been in contact with somebody that works there in the same position he had, and he said some of those buildings are still at the University of South Carolina. Oh,
0: so how in the world did he end up here in the Dakotas?
1: Well, then he, then he became president of... Uh, a steel company and as at that time a steel company was very important because if you didn't have a steel company you wouldn't be able to make any guns and bullets so that was very political but he knew like i said he knew many people that later on became involved in the government and in and, and the military and the steel company was having a hard time because They weren't uh, getting orders or nobody was buying from him. but he got some contracts uh, through his noise, a lot of these people, to furnish cable to many areas such as San Francisco to build a lot of their bridges and stuff. And so then they was able to make money and was able then to produce a lot of guns and, and shells. And then he left there and he was the president of a, railroad company, which built a railroad from the Great Lakes to New York. And before he went there, there was four different engineers that started it because uh, because of the rough terrain, and you had to go through mountains, through flat areas, and go through the lakes, and a lot of water, and, and all kinds of problems besides the Indians constantly fought them. So he used to fight the Indians, I guess. <laughs>
0: oh, I I suppose.
1: <laughs> and anyway, he he accomplished it and he got that railroad built, and then, one just as he was finishing up there, well, somebody asked him to come out here, and at first he declined, and then, but since he knew many of these people, well, then they asked him again, so then he decided to come to this area, and he was. Uh, agent of all the Indians, west of the Missouri River, north of the North Platte River, to the Rocky Mountains. So he's in charge of all the Indians in that area. And his headquarters were at Port Laramie. And after he came out here, well, he married a Indian lady whose uh, father was a uh, chief of the Northern Cheyenne. And uh, he stayed out here for, well, he was Indian agent for five years. And then when uh, Lincoln got in, well, he knew Lincoln and they, they didn't agree on a lot of things, so he resigned. Oh. But Lincoln told him he wasn't going to keep him.
0: Oh. And so
1: then so then he was retired and lived uh, near Fort Lamry for a while. And then he went to Rulo, Nebraska. bought an orchard there and they had six children and here he got ill there and he's well he was married prior to coming out here he had three daughters in troy new york and one of the daughters came out here and took him back and he died shortly after that so he's buried in troy troy new york i went out there about 20 years ago and found his grave he doesn't have a marker oh gee Being a major in the military and has no marker.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Lewis, this is so interesting. And and I think we're going to have to probably visit about this again and maybe go into a little more detail. Because for one thing, I never knew that you had northern Cheyenne blood in you. Because well, I
1: didn't until I started researching, and nobody else did either.
0: Yeah, and isn't that fascinating? And Well, just
1: like on the swallow side. Oh, yeah. It was a brew. brew.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, um, for my listeners that aren't aware, when, when you're enrolled in a tribe, even if you have, like, Northern Cheyenne and Okalala, you have to pick one. You can't be enrolled in two tribes. And and right. so many of us that are Okalala are Lakota. There was such uh, intermingling. Uh, the Northern Cheyenne was such good allies. that Right, right. They yeah. were, definitely. Yeah. And so often we find out we're both. We're both uh, tribes. And Lewis, I'm just so thankful that you took time out. I, I know you keep busy, and I like to to think about the people I visit with and what Lakota value that I, I feel they have. And I guess you, you have many of them. You have many, but, you know, I can't give you all of them. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just, so I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I, I think perseverance and fortitude and um, also respect, I would say those are definitely values that you have. And, and I sure hope that you'll come on uh, Lakota Link again and visit with us.
1: Okay, yes, I'd like to do that again. i appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I I enjoy visiting with the people. And if you did, go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it or if you have some comments we would love to hear your opinion this is a new adventure for us and I value your opinion this song is written and sung by my good friend Quincy Goodstar Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.